This is Out of the Crisis. I'm Eric Ries. If you go outside, you need to wear a mask. You know that, right? But how do you know that? Think about how quickly we as a society have gone from thinking that masks were something that would be pretty strange to wear in public to understanding, you know, not yet completely, that they are a necessity. It's not a coincidence. It didn't happen by itself. People had to make a change. And some of them were politicians and leaders, scientists, public health officials, but some were just citizens who realized that something new was needed. I normally start by saying something about where we are in this crisis. However, my guest for this conversation is so concise and clear about the data and what we all need to do that I'm just going to let him summarize it. Jeremy Howard is not a medical doctor. He's not a lobbyist. He's not a politician. He is a data scientist. And this data scientist is the reason that many of our cities and states are telling us all to wear a mask outside right now. Jeremy never thought of himself as an activist, and he certainly didn't expect to be part of the reason that many cities are flattening the curve as we speak. But he is leading the Masks for All movement. Masks for All is advocating for everyone to wear a mask to stop the spread of COVID-19. That may sound like common sense today, but it was only a few weeks ago that this was a very radical proposition. This is a citizen-driven movement that has led whole states, countries, and public health agencies to revise their guidance on masks. Jeremy and I talked about why he is such a big believer in masks and what the data says about why masks are important. I've learned a lot from him about how to use data responsibly and about how we can be more evidence-driven in our decisions as a society, as policymakers, and as individuals. Here's my conversation with Jeremy Howard. I'm Jeremy Howard, a research scientist at the University of San Francisco. I chair a medical data research lab called WAMRI and uh, probably best known as the co-founder of Fast.ai although increasingly finding myself known, surprisingly enough to me, as the co-founder of this thing called Masks for All. Jeremy, thanks so much for taking time to talk to me. Just give us a little bit of a sense of your background um, before the crisis hit. Sure. Um, It's a bit of a weird background. Uh, I'm mainly known as an AI guy nowadays, since I'm the co-founder of Fast.ai, which is a reasonably well-known research lab that also does teaching, um, possibly the most popular AI kind of deep learning course in the world. It's really good. Thanks. Um, And uh, we have a software library called FastAI, which is the most popular layer that sits on top of PyTorch for deep learning. Before that, I uh, founded a company called Analytic, which was the first company to use focus on deep learning in medicine. So that's, you can see why I'm kind of known (laughs) as an AI guy. Before that, I... um, was an equal partner in Kaggle, which is a popular data science uh, competition community. Um, But before that, I did a range of different things. Um, I spent 10 years uh, creating and running an insurance pricing company, 10 years creating and running a popular email provider called Fastmail, and almost 10 years as a very boring corporate strategy management consultant at McKinsey and AT Kearney. It's a very eclectic... um 
set of work experiences. What yeah. was your what was your early life educational background like? Not much really. I started at McKinsey when I was eighteen. So, although in theory I have a Bachelor of Arts, I didn't actually go to any lectures. I only went to the um, exams. <laughs> so it was a bit of a stressful time because I didn't go to any lectures. So at the end of the term, I'd go to the teachers and say, hi, I was actually in your course. <laughs> Did you have any assignments? Uh, could I do it by tomorrow? Because I know it's late, but you know, <laughs> they always said yes, somehow. Very kind of them. Yeah. How did you get into AI originally? Well, I was always super interested in what people now call data science. That's been the common theme throughout my career. So the reason I was able to get into McKinsey at 18 was because I, you know, use this data-driven approach. So McKinsey called me an analytical specialist, which at the time I thought I was the only one, but I found there was two others around the world. We found each other. Um, so I was always doing like, you know, linear programming and operations researchy stuff and regression models and whatever to try to solve corporate strategy problems. Um, How did you even have the idea at 18 to take that to McKinsey? You know, too much fiddling around with Lotus 1, 2, 3, I guess. <laughs> I... Um, you know, there was actually a teacher who taught us, uh, I think we had one class about spreadsheets at high school. And I was just like, wait, this replaces nearly everything we've learned in, in <laughs> math and science. And like, so I'm just going to do nothing but this. So I kind of did spreadsheets. And then the guy that lived across the road from me was like, I'm a management consultant. Do you know what that is? I was like, I have no idea. And he told me, and I was like, okay, I want to do that too. Um, so he said, uh, okay, well, you can look at all this human resources data for this mine in Ghana. Um, you could probably use your spreadsheet to like crunch it. And I did, and he was thrilled. And then this thing called Microsoft Access came out, which I learned was this thing called a database. And that was like a spreadsheet on steroids. And so then I started doing that with this management consulting guy. So it was all like, I don't know, uh, <laughs> something I sh should have been doing in high school, but instead I was doing this, I suppose. Oh my goodness! I can really relate. I have I have similar stories about computer programming from my <laughs> from my from my early days. I mean, and, I was never uh, much of a programmer. It was all like, I mean, it was a bit of VBA, you know. But it's yeah, really... no, I know that ability as a as a young person to get adults in the grown up world to take you seriously. Well, it's so much easier then because none of them knew how to do this stuff. So by the time I got to McKinsey, they thought I was some kind of magician, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and, which is good because I, you know, the rest of them used kind of interviews and expertise and knowledge, which I didn't have any of those things. So data was my fallback. That's, uh, I feel like this is like foreshadowing for the, for things that are going to happen later in your story. <laughs> that's, that's pretty awesome. These are dark times and it's, you know, it's been very stressful for all of us. First of all, how are you? How's your family? What's your quarantine set up like? Sure. So, um, we looked at the data a few months ago and realized this is going to be bad. We weren't sure how bad. So kind of working on the precautionary principle, we assumed it could be really bad. Um, so we left San Francisco a long time before the lockdown happened, uh, went somewhere remote, but reasonably close to a <clears throat> good hospital. And we've been hanging out there since. Um, you know, it's been okay. We've, we've, we've got a four-year-old child and she's just, it's amazing how adaptable she is. She spends mm -hmm. more time on Zoom each day than I do, um, just hanging out with her friends and they somehow keep themselves amused. I'm very familiar. Yeah, you know, it's been interesting because, you know, some of our family are healthcare workers, some of them have got sick, but then they got better. So there was like scary moments, you know, um, so plenty of dark bits, but also, you know, this weird discovery that you can kind of 
create incredibly close connections with people that I've never met before and kind of build a global community of people who want nothing more than to help save lives. Um, and that's been kind of remarkable. You know, I've kind of discovered this, uh, I've, you know, I've never had such a collaborative period in my life by, by, by far. And I say this as somebody who's done a lot of collaboration. So mm -hmm. it's been interesting highs and lows like that. I've had so many similar experiences and I was just, someone was asking me some something about one of my collaborators on, on one of these projects. And they asked me about his background before the crisis. And I realized I knew absolutely nothing about him. Yeah. I couldn't answer even the first question. I said, listen, we're bonded for life. I would do anything for this person, but I, I actually don't really know them. We've never met. Yeah. Well, I mean, same with you, right? Like yeah. I, I vaguely knew who you were because I was at Singularity University overlapping when you did some stuff oh, there, sure. but I don't think we ever bumped into each other. Um, and I kind of know some of your work, but then I was introduced to you for reasons totally unrelated to any of that. And we've been, you know, helping each other out, or mainly you helping me out, <laughs> uh, which is like, you know, an, an example of, of this. Well, I hope, I hope it's been helpful. And certainly uh, you've been helping me and so many of us um, through your work on Mass for All. So thanks. I think, I think we, all, we all owe you a, a debt of gratitude for that. Well, it's boring and horrible as all hell, so <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. Yeah, exactly. It's not, not, I don't think this is the kind of work that anyone does for fun. No. Do you have a favorite quarantine tip? <laughs> uh, it's possible to live on a life uh, of a diet of nearly entirely carbs that come out of your freezer and not fall apart. <laughs> it's very different to the diet I used to have of like fresh food shopping every day, but it seems to be working okay. I've also discovered that I don't actually need my home, you know, Olympic lifting gym as much as I needed. I've discovered much more about the ability to use body weight exercises to keep myself from getting too flabby. I think we've all we've all had that learning. Uh, that's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate you sharing. All right. So, wh where were you? Do you have a moment that you recall when the severity or the reality of the pandemic first occurred to you or became manifest to you? No, I, I mean, for me, it was a drip of drip drip of data. I think as soon as we saw community transmission. Um, strong signs of asymptomatic transmission mm -hmm. during, I don't know, late January, then into February, step happening around the world. It seemed um, like there was a pretty high chance this is going to be a very serious global pandemic. What were you doing at the time? I mean, how were you spending your time between Fast AI and, and uh, your university commitments? Well, they're kind of one and the same. Um, Fast AI and my, you know, my university is just amazingly great. They're, they're super flexible and helpful. And so really like everything I do in Fast AI is connected to the university and vice versa. So my focus has been on uh, kind of taking our research and software and courses to the next level. Um, you know, I really felt like we'd gotten to the point where we had a really good way of doing and teaching deep learning. And so we decided to kind of take 18 months off pretty much teaching and doing anything else and focus on making our software as good it could as good as it could be. So we rewrote re it from scratch. We wrote a whole new kind of development environment for writing it from scratch. Um, uh, and we decided to write a book about it. 
um, and we wrote a whole new kind of publishing system for writing the book. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's kind of like been this like really cool 18 months uh, working with uh, um, my colleague, uh, Silva Anguga. And we were, you know, coming to the end of that process. So the, the book was kind of due out in the middle of the year. Um, and the, the recording the course um, started a few weeks ago. Um, so it was really getting to a very exciting part of, you know, uh, I guess the last five years or four or five years of my life building up to, to this moment of, of the first half of this year. And then life throws you a wrench into those plans? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, um, we've largely finished the book. Um, and so, you know, hopefully it won't be too late. People have already pre-ordered it, <laughs> lots of people. Um, and the software already works great. Um, it still needs some documentation cleanup. Um, and I'm still teaching the course, uh, which has actually been super weird to, to, you know, spend time every week in the middle of all this stuff that's going on. Yeah. Um, but to be clear, I think it's important for people to understand you're not an epidemiologist and you were not working on masks or quarantine pandemic related topics i mean even as recently as uh, as a few months ago oh god i would never choose to work on masks if i didn't have to good lord no i could think of nothing worse um yeah no absolutely uh, my my uh, i do a lot of uh, medical work um, particularly because as i mentioned i uh, was the founder of this company called Enlytic, which was the first company to focus on deep learning and medicine uh, but you know my focus is more on medical imaging um, we, we do a lot of work, you know, we work with Stanford and Harvard and UCSF and, you know, a bunch of academic medical hospitals to kind of help them bring modern techniques to, to their projects. Um, so like one of the really cool things we did was to work with uh, the Salk Institute, which is arguably the top kind of life biology lab in the world. And uh, we worked with their um, core microscopy team and built a new algorithm with them that we co-published that basically allowed them to get um, orders of magnitude higher resolution from their existing equipment, allowing them to kind of map the connectome of a brain um, and how it changes over time, you know, in ways that have never been done before. Uh, so, you know, that was the kind of work I was, I was doing and it was a, a lot, lot, lot more interesting than masks. So how did masks come into your life and how did you wind up uh, founding yeah. this group? Well, one of the things I care a lot about is um, how we understand data as as evidence. Um, and I'm, it drives me crazy to see how most medical research is treated as this kind of binary decision with randomized controlled trials and p-values. And it's like, oh, this is statistically significant or it isn't. Uh, so one of my long-running kind of rants has been about... Um, how we should kind of gather all the evidence we have to try and make a best guess as to kind of the distribution of possible outcomes based on possible upsides and possible risks and costs and make an overall assessment of, of that totality of, of, of evidence and impacts. So I was kind of, um, so I was teaching that in this, in this course, because it's not just a deep learning course that covers a lot of machine learning and data science topics like evidence and probabilistic reasoning. So I wanted a case study. And um, one of the things we talk about a lot in the course is ethics. And uh, we particularly talk about the idea that a data scientist, you know, should have a responsibility to not just analyze data, but to do something with it, um, to stand behind their results, to talk to the people who can use them. So I wanted to get something kind of current and 
relevant to policy. So I, I, I kind of noticed from stories on social media, I guess, that countries that were using masks a lot seemed to be getting better outcomes than countries that didn't, at like hundreds of times better, um, which is exactly the kind of uh, evidence which a lot of medical folks tend to ignore because it's so imperfect. What kind of evidence were you looking at? I mean, just, just the, the, the data, like Taiwan, Hong Kong, Mongolia, you know, right next to China, a lot of trade, a lot of social back and forth, um, you know, Chinese New Year, um, yet they're in, you know, double figures, uh, numbers of, of deaths. I think it's four or five in Hong Kong. They've kept their economies open. Um, you know, restaurants are still doing business, um, you know, compared to nowadays in places like uh, London and New York, you're getting thousands and thousands of deaths every week. Um, and, and, you know, even at that time, it was very, very obvious that the trajectory in these countries was extraordinarily different. I think for a lot of people listening, they'll think to themselves, wait a minute, I was on social media at the same time as you were. I don't, I don't recall have, seeing this data or understanding it. So just talk a little bit more about what you actually, like how, how that data came into your awareness. Mm, sure. What did you actually see? And, and then what was it about that data that, that prompted you to want to take action versus viewing it more as an academic curiosity? Yeah. Well, you know, when I say social media, for me, that means Twitter. And I'm, I'm very kind of careful about my use of Twitter. I use the API to find interesting topics and accounts and kind of go out from there to find a range of perspectives that might be interesting. So my kind of Twitter feed is fairly carefully curated. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd say like at this point, it wasn't I was determined I was going to make a big deal of this masks thing. It was more, as I say, it's just like I wanted to teach a lesson and I thought I'd just explore a little bit for a few hours to see if this would make for a good lesson. And so really what happened was um, I, I, I was just shocked by what I found. The, the, the quality of the evidence was still, you know, a little sketchy. But the size, apparent size of the impact was astonishing, like many orders of magnitude mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, human life and hundreds of billions of dollars of potential economic um, impact. And I kind of thought, wow, this is um, really surprising that I just don't hear anybody talking about it. You know, while I was doing this, there was an um, article that came out in the New York Times from Zainab Chufekci basically saying, um, hey, you guys telling us that masks don't work was a kind of a dumb thing to do. She's a she's a professor of sociology. So, you know, that was and kind we'll, of a... We'll put a link to some of her writing in the show notes. It's astonishing how Zenep is always first to so many yeah. of these ideas. Yeah. You know, she didn't go as far as saying like we should all be wearing them, but she was like, we, you shouldn't, you should at least not be lying to people as a matter of kind of health policy. And explain, explain a little bit about the state of thinking at that time. Cause I, I remember that, that there was a strong statement from, I think from the CDC saying, mm -hmm. don't wear masks. And, and we're, and also explain that we're talking about, um, uh, masks for the general public. We're not talking about right. N95 masks or the mask for nurses. Just say a little bit about what was the controversy at that time. Well, people didn't even, people just used the word mask. They didn't just, really distinguished the idea that there were multiple types. Mm -hmm. The Surgeon General got out on Twitter as I was doing this research and said, um, masks uh, don't help, so don't use them. 
um, and let the healthcare workers use them. So he was kind of the one who made the most direct and clearly wrong um, statement. The CDC and WHO were just more like highly misleading. Um, the WHO still has a policy of saying you should only use a mask if you're sick or you're with somebody who's sick. Um, but of course, we have no idea who's sick, so it's kind of that's that's weird. The you know other health bodies like the American and European Disease Control Centers generally had variants of the the WHO, which were very different to you know Taiwan that invested massively. Well, their SMEs basically kind of invested massively to get to a point where they could create uh, ten million masks. Uh, I think it's 10 million a day for 30 million people. Um, and uh, Hong Kong, where about 90% of shops require a mask to go inside. Mongolia, which I think had a law about requiring them. The interesting thing for me, you know, I'm kind of very interested in a kind of implicit bias and racism and stuff like that. And, and to me, the idea that these countries that are uh, have fairly recent experience and expertise with respiratory pandemics were being ignored when it came to policy. Um, and I kind of thought, well, I wonder if that's because they don't look like us. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. uh, People kind of assume that they're somehow different. And so it's one of these kind of um, systematic bias issues that, that I'm very interested in digging into to see whether the data actually tells us something different to what our kind of biased intuition suggests. So what was the reasoning for not wearing masks, especially given the data that you were seeing? You were, I don't know if you want to do a, a rant on Bayesian versus frequentist statistics. Any yeah, I mean, I wouldn't exactly call it like that. There's certainly like a lack of probabilistic approach. So there's this thing called evidence-based medicine, which drives me crazy. And I do plan to write something about this with folks that are, you know, experts on this. Um, you know, evidence-based medicine is this kind of very binary thing where you do a randomized controlled trial and you find out if the p-value is less than 0.05. And if it is, you say it's significant and then you recommend it. Um, and this is actually totally out of line with the guidelines of the American Statistical Association. Uh, they have seven guidelines around this, which clearly say, don't be using p-values and stuff as the basis for your policy decisions. Because a p-value tells you nothing about whether a relationship doesn't exist. Um, it also tells you nothing about if it does exist, how important it is. Uh, like, does it actually matter? Um, so the, and the WHO is very, very, very into this um, approach. So I, you know, I've spoken to lots and lots of advisors to the WHO and they, they're all feeling kind of crazy about this because they're all saying this so much looks like a, you know, maybe the most important tool we have um, it's, you know, possibly as important or more important than distancing. And it's certainly a hell of a lot cheaper. Um, and the WHO saying, well, effectively, we're, we're not going to recommend it in the absence of a randomized controlled trial. And here's the thing, it's actually impossible to run one. So what would a randomized controlled trial for the impact of masks on community transmission look like? Well, it'd have to be at a community level, otherwise you can't tell the impact on community transmission. So you'd have to like pick a hundred cities and then say to 50 of them, and that those hundred cities have to be like representative of the population you cared about. And then you have to pick 50 of them and say, nobody in these cities is allowed to wear masks. And then the other 50, you'd have to say, okay, everybody in these has to wear masks. 
And that would never get passed an ethics review board because you can't, you know, we, we have such a strong prior that, that masks work, that, that telling large groups of people not to use them, we, you know, would very likely to lead to a massive amount of deaths. So it's interesting. It sounds like there are these theses out there where the prior is strong enough that you think it's a good idea that you can't run a trial without it, but the evidence is not strong enough according to the p-values that you can actually endorse it as the policy. Well, you, you can't even get a p-value. You, you can't. It's, it's unstudiable yeah. and therefore not recommendable. Right. It's studyable using observational techniques. So so what I did for this lesson was I tried to show a, you know, a range of techniques that data scientists can use to gather evidence in the absence of a um, randomized controlled trial. So we can do things like say, okay, how is this transmitted? And it turns out it's nearly entirely transmitted through droplets. Um, seems like mainly when we speak, maybe also when we breathe. Uh, and it's like, okay, well, let's just look physically at, do those droplets get stopped by a piece of cloth? And so I actually came across, um, uh, somebody actually reached out to me and said, hey, I've been um, doing a kind of a secret study <laughs> of this in a laser chamber. Um, and it had to be secret because... Um, publishing this stuff at that stage was basically a career-ending move. So all the scientists I spoke to were not able to go on the record about their work. So I knew about a lot of science that was being done in secret. And they and basically- so antithetical to the scientific credo. In theory, it should be, yeah. But um, yeah. the problem is when you do a piece of work that suggests that the leading health policy bodies are saying the wrong thing, it does tend to undermine- the credibility of the peak health policy bodies. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge problem because we need to people to like take vaccinations seriously and take yeah. condoms seriously. So like there's a lot of historical reason why we protect these health policy bodies. And so the, the fact that they've um, messed up so badly with masks is not just, you know, killing people because they're not wearing masks, but it's also undermining, you know, the credibility of a system that we really need people to to trust. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with the book Good Calories, Bad Calories by Gary Cobbs, but he's a science reporter who looked into why so much of the nutritional research went astray over the past few decades. And this issue comes up again and again and again as people discovered contrary findings, yeah. but suppressed them because they didn't want to undermine the public health authorities. Because they lacked that information, we're giving people the wrong advice. Right. Well, I mean, you know, one of the things we can certainly talk about is how, how much I've learned about how um, health policy is done. It would be nice to imagine it was this kind of science-based thing and what the WHO says is based on what scientists say. Um, but unfortunately, there's this huge disconnect. Um, and, you know, the policy <laughs> involves politics. And so once a health body says something, um, they have a tendency, particularly in the WHO's case, to kind of stick with it, even as new information comes along for far too long. Um, and they also tend to communicate in ways that are really unhelpful to the public. So, for example, they have they still have this this GIF up on their site, this picture saying um, COVID nineteen, or the you know the particles um, is not airborne, which is like strictly speaking true if you use a really kind of wacky definition of airborne that doesn't mean born through the air, but means reaches a certain droplet size, which hangs around for a certain amount of time and potentially goes through vents to other floors of a building and so forth. But it's absolutely true for sure that nearly all transmission seems to be born through the air, <laughs> you know? Right. So like policy policy bodies um, 
communicate in weird ways and they make decisions in weird ways. And there's this huge disconnect between kind of science and, and policy, which means that for me to get the policy changed here, I actually had to um, become a, a an advocate and a campaigner. It wasn't enough to just find these scientists that were doing good research and to help kind of publicize them and and uh, create our own research and so forth. It, that That's just not enough to, to, to move the dial on policy. Let's go back to having this realization that masks were going to be an important part of the public health solution. You're mm. a university professor. I think the caricature of a university professor is maybe you would write a paper about it or teach a class mm -hmm. about it, or mm -hmm. maybe if you're feeling really adventurous, uh, tweet about it or something. Mm -hmm. But you wound up doing something different. Why? Well, I, I, no, I mean, I was a caricature of a professor. I, I taught a class about it. Uh, so I said like, hey, look, gang, so I've got about a thousand people in this class that I, that I teach each week. And I said, uh, okay, let's start looking at this evidence-based kind of data analysis. So we're doing masks this week. And here's what happens when we look at the population-based epidemiological evidence. And here's what we look at when we look at the physical evidence. And here's what we look at when we look at kind of efficacy studies and you know, overall, we can put all this together and we can estimate the economic value of a mask as being something like $5,000 per person per mask, um, blah, 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 blah. And so, I don't know, that was like 10, 15 minutes of class. And so my students were like, um, you've you, got to tell other people this, <laughs> you know, don't just tell us. Um, because normally we don't make our um, course public for a few months when it becomes mm -hmm. a part of our MOOC. So I was like, okay. So I extracted that little bit and put it online. Do you remember when this was? About four weeks ago, I guess. Uh -huh. So this would be um, mid-March, mid basically? So I can tell you the date. 24th of March. So you taught this class on March 24th? Yep. And uploaded the video to YouTube on the 25th. And then on the 26th, much to my surprise, uh, editor from the Washington Post emails me and says... Uh, hey, Dr. Howard, can you write an article about this? And I was like, well, you know, hey, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> like people keep assuming this. It's just like, I'm just a data scientist. Uh, you know, and B, what do you mean an article? And uh, he was like, well, this actually seems like something that's, that's important. Um, and at this point, we had actually... Um, my, my Fast AI co-founder and wife, uh, Rachel Thomas, and I had actually couple of weeks earlier, written uh, an article on our blog uh, saying like COVID-19 is actually kind of going to be a big deal. Please take it seriously. So we'd already kind of done a little d data science dive into that. And much to our surprise, like a million people read it, even though we just chucked it up on our blog. Yeah, I, re I remember that. It was, it was a time when there was very little information that the popular that was the high quality that that members of the public could consume. Yeah, yeah, a lot of um we heard from a lot of uh, hospital administrators and uh, all kind you know people running companies and stuff saying that was you know the reason they started taking it seriously and they started canceling their events and so that was cool. We'll we'll include a link to that article uh, in the in the notes cool. so you can I, I want people to be able to see how fast and how far we've come in such a short time in terms of our understanding of this pandemic. Yeah, it's ancient history now. Right. <laughs> um but again, it was kind of this thing of like, hey, we're data scientists. This is what the data says. Um, this, you know, and it's going to be hard for us to act rationally because our kind of gut is not used to dealing with exponentials. 
Mm -hmm. So I guess, you know, when this editor reached out, it's like, okay, I guess I know that our writing can make a difference. So, all right, I'll give it a go. Um, so I wrote uh, uh, an op-ed and um, I'm lucky enough to have some fantastic friends, particularly folks that I've met through the World Economic Forum, who I reached out to who write op-eds all the time. And they made my op-ed way, way better. Um, and uh, yeah, I sent it in and thanks to them, it it turned out great. And uh, apparently over a million people read this thing in the Washington Post, which um, the title that uh, I think they picked, I don't, can't remember who picked it, was simple DIY masks could help flatten the curve. We should all wear them in public. And then the subtitle was got a t-shirt, you can make a mask at home. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, that's still the message. And I think that was the first time in the English speaking world that there was a clear call to action saying we should wear masks. But it absolutely was not the first time in the West. Um, in fact, largely I was plagiarizing from a guy called Peter Ludwig, who had already done all this in the Czech Republic. Mm -hmm. um, and so even when I did the, the video for my class, a lot of it was basically me saying, okay, this guy called Peter Ludwig, you know, looked at this and then he said this, and then he looked at this and then he said this, and then this is what happened. Um, because um, he started this uh, astonishing campaign in the Czech Republic, which was the first country in the West to get to basically about 100% mask usage, weeks and weeks ahead of anybody else. Um, and it was all thanks to his great um, science communication. So every time I wondered like, you know, okay, now that I've decided this is important, what should I do next? It was always like, well, can you try to do whatever Peter did? <laughs> Cause, what was, cause what was Peter's gonna... background and how did you know him? Uh, I didn't know him. Um, as you know, part of the research was like, I kind of thought, um, you know, there's not much point advocating for masks because nobody's going to wear them in the West. You know, everybody knows that only Asian people wear masks, so mm -hmm. why bother? And I, I actually came across this story that like, um, again, on Twitter, it's like, well, actually, that's not true. Uh, everybody in the Czech Republic is wearing masks. And I looked into why and I found this, uh, this video in Czech from this guy, Peter, um, with subtitles. And it was very, um, yeah, it was like really nicely done. And then one of the people in the Czech Republic had been kind enough to write a Google doc, basically describing the story that they, that they watched as people saw this video and they got, you know, really into the idea of wearing masks. And within three days, the whole country had masks within three days with no government support. They like, they put up these things they called mask trees on like street corners where people would make masks and go and hang them up on the mask tree, you know, and, and celebrities would like have songs and videos about masks mm -hmm. and people, you know, in fashion would create fashionable masks. And uh, so I, for my Washington Post story, I really wanted to like anchor it with a specific, you know, example of this. So I reached out to some folks I found on social media who had, uh, had to close up their bar in Prague and because um, of social distancing. And two days later, they reopened it as a mask making factory. And when I say factory, what I mean is they went around to their neighbors and asked if anybody had sewing machines and uh, borrowed as many as they could. And uh, within a week, they were making 400 masks a day and had a full-time driver, nine full-time staff. And they did the whole thing actually for free. They gave them all away. So in my Washington Post piece, you know, I was able to like have a paragraph describing 
this story, you know, I was chatting to the people actually from the bar, you know, via Twitter DM, and they sent me photos, and they told me all their names, and they described exactly what happened. And so I kind of found myself um, immersed in the world of, 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 of the Czech Republic. And they <laughs> all um, wanted me to tell this story, because they were also proud of what their country had done. Um, and for them, a lot of it was this kind of a weird anti-government thing. A lot of them yeah. seemed to hate their government and they were annoyed that the government wasn't doing anything. Uh, they felt lied to about masks after Peter's video. And so part of it was like, well, damn it, this is something we can do ourselves. You know, we don't Almost have like to Almost like an wait. act of resistance. Yeah, we don't have to wait for the government. You know, if, 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 you know, if they're not going to do anything, we're going to do it ourselves. So they were super proud that they'd kind of, as a grassroots movement, had made this happen. And it actually forced their government to change. A week later, the government turned around and started um, requiring masks in public. How many times in this pandemic have we seen this story of civic society rising up and leading the people who are supposed to be the leaders? I know, saying, it's amazing. Hey, no, it's, it's been a, re- a remarkable thing to see over and over it, again. It really has. Um, you know. And, and the deeper I get into kind of um, policy, and I'm now, you know, been talking with leaders in you know, Europe and England and Africa and America, the more I find myself talking to random people who, you know, so like I'm spending a lot of time working with a musician in England at the moment who has turned out to be one of the key influences in their mm-hmm. ability to, to make masks happen in, in, in England. Um, yeah, I mean, people are just seeing that stuff needs to get done and they're seeing it's not getting done. And so they're finding ways to to do it. And then, you know, that puts the pressure on when, when the public's saying, well, we're doing it anyway, then I think governments have to respond. How does it feel to be in the middle of all that activity? I think people from the outside who haven't seen what you and I have seen up close would expect this to all be chaos and a kind of anti-intellectual mob if you just say all random people will be in charge of things. You know, because these are kind of self-selected people, they're just super caring and um, super passionate um, and uh, doers rather than talkers, you know, because we don't have companies organizing what we're meant to do or KPIs to meet or whatever. Right. So, you know, I'm, uh, you know, one of the great things that happened early on was uh, um, somebody reached out to me and said, like, well, I know this um, Republican senator who I think might be interested. And uh, do you want me to connect you? And it's like, sure. Five minutes later, he's like, okay, Senator, you should talk to this guy, Jeremy. He's got this view about masks. And I sent him a couple of paragraphs. 20 minutes later, the Senator emails me back and he's like, this is great. Um, You know, I'm going to do a video about this. By the next day, he had a video on Twitter of him wearing a mask. And, um, you know, so this guy who helped me connect uh, and I talked and, you know, we, we had never met before. Um, and we thought, well, this could be really bad if this becomes a partisan issue. So he helped me uh, reach out to a Democratic senator. Uh, and so I spoke to his team. I didn't speak directly to the senator in this case. And uh, I think one or two days later, we had a Democrat senator um, doing the same thing in public, you know, uh, showing a picture, wearing a mask, telling other people to wear a mask. And so within, you know, another three or four days, I was... Um, briefing 10 Senate officers, um, you know, on a, on a big conference call on the whole thing. Um, and briefing senators, you know, who were talking to Donald Trump that day and briefing senators who were talking to the 
lead policymakers in the CDC. Um, you know, they, they were super interested. They were super helpful. Um, you know, watching Democrats and Republicans, you know, their, their officers and the senators just emailing each other, chatting, working together, you know, figuring out the messaging, you know, figuring out like, oh, you know, how do we, you know, get the CDC to change their tune without making them look bad, thinking, you know, how do we, you know, how do we, what are the scientific issues they need to understand? How do we explain them best? Um, oh, it was, it was great. So here's a part of the story I don't even know, because I remember when the Washington Post article came out, I remember there being a lot of excitement among some folks in the tech community that there was this new idea that could make a big difference and that maybe the official authorities weren't getting it. And then next thing I know, there's a mask for all organization and you're just having like impact after impact after impact as the dominoes start to fall. What what took it from like an idea that you were just talking to some people about to an actual thing? I mean, it's still not an actual thing. You know, that's the thing. Like people keep emailing me and saying, you know, can I join your organization? And I was like, look, we're just a bunch of random people doing random things. You know, I, I don't like, I'm kind of the face of it in the English speaking world, but obviously Peter is kind of the, very much the face of it in Europe. Well, you have a domain name and a website. So that's yeah, we different have than just having a, a website, so, so, I, so where'd that come from? I went and, I went and registered a domain name and then, uh, Super helpful guy called um, Cam Goodson uh, and I connected. I yeah, think shout through, out to Cam. Yeah, I think through Misha Shellam, who you probably know. So Misha is, you know, a great kind of connector in the kind of tech policy community, and I've known him for a long time. He's a good friend, um, and I reached out to him and said, like, you know, I need, I need help. Um, and I think some of the, you know, WhatsApp groups that you and I are on, Eric, I kind of. Mm-hmm begged for help. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, got connected with Cam who, who uh, put the whole website together with really minimal supervision. Cause I don't really have any supervision to give us. Just like, I don't know, look at my Twitter feed. That's what I say. And <laughs> here's my media, you know, appearances. And um, here's the website that, you know, the domain name I have, tell me where to point the A records. So he basically made that happen. And, and, you know, uh, so that, and at the same time that was happening within a day of my Washington Post article coming out, I was getting calls from Good Morning America and Nightline and Joy Reid's team and CNN's team saying like, come on, come on, tell this story on TV. <laughs> um, so I, um, I reached out to a friend who uh, knows everybody and everything. He used to report to... Um, Obama when he was in the White House and uh, said, like, do you know anybody who can help? And he hooked me up with some volunteer PR people. Um, you know, when I say volunteer, it sounds like they're some kind of interns or something like that. Some of the top PR people in the world. Um, well, that, that, and that's a remarkable thing many of us have experienced, that, that yeah, some of the most exactly. talented people in the world are all of a sudden available on a part-time volunteer basis that would, I mean, that would have been inconceivable a few months ago. Exactly. No, no, exactly. Absolutely. So, you know, I was like, can you, can you help with this? So they helped kind of deal with the logistics of all the inbound. And then when there was new news, I would pass it along and they'd send it off to, you know, the, the bookers. Um, and then I started getting, you know, uh, particularly through the world economic forum community, I asked for help and people were like, Oh, you know, I'm, I know this, top team at one of the world's top advertising companies. Do you want me to 
<laughs> connect you for that. And yeah, nobody's really got enough work to do. So, and they all want to do useful things. Um, so people have been super, super helpful. It's, it's always hard to know like exactly which bits are our impact and what's, what would have happened anyway, but it's been cool to see like, I don't know, for example, like um, the mayor of London yesterday or the day before wrote something, you know, an open letter in the times saying, um, Hey, we, we want to require everybody to wear masks. Come on, UK government, change your policy. And he only tagged two people. Um, uh, one was me and the other was a soccer player, uh, Gary Lineker. <laughs> and I was kind of like, <laughs> okay, you know, otherwise I wouldn't have known that, you know, my campaigning and nagging and stuff made a difference. But when I saw he had done that, I kind of thought, oh, that's, that's nice that he, you know, is, is saying that made a difference. What are some other things that have surprised you? I feel like I want to pick up the story, you know, kind of going back to the moment you wrote the op-ed, mm. you went, you know, you went on TV for the first time, mm. and then you started to see these policy changes happen. Tell us some of those stories of just, it must've been surreal to be on those calls, you know, and to see things yeah. translate into action so quickly. I mean, luckily I was kind of in the right place to do this because I, I used to do a lot of TV in Australia. Um, I was kind of for the main morning news show, I was kind of the go-to IT guy if they wanted to talk about the latest, you know, Internet Explorer security problem or election hacking or whatever. Um, so I was kind of happy, you know, I'm no expert, but I was happy enough to go on TV. So when they said, you know, good morning, America, were the first to call and say, can you come on tomorrow morning? I, I didn't totally embarrass myself, which is good. What had you been doing in Australia, by the way, that you had experience with? Uh, so, you know, that was mainly around my company's FastMail, the, the email company and mm -hmm. Optimal Decisions, the insurance pricing company, but particularly FastMail, which, you know, was a pretty popular email service or still is a pretty popular email service. Um, so, you know, because it was Australian, Australian born, they were happy to have a local Aussie kind of face of, of, of IT. They'd always ask me about random stuff that had nothing to do with <laughs> email, but that's fine. So you were, you were accustomed to doing that kind of, uh, that kind of TV? Yeah, somewhat, yeah. Um, yeah, so like the, the way the media works is kind of things pop in and out of the news cycle very quickly. So there was uh, basically continuous media bookings in the US for, for a few days. And one of the best ones was... Um, I was on, uh, it was CNN as uh, a group, as a part of, as, as well as the host, there was also Ashish Jha, who is uh, a Harvard, uh, I think he kind of runs their health policy group or something. And it was really cool because I always feel very, um, you know, like I don't belong in all of these conversations because I, I don't, I'm not a medical doctor, I'm not an epidemiologist or whatever. And there's always a lot of... Um, uh, skepticism about whether somebody without the appropriate credentials can have any idea what they're talking about. So being able to be on a, you know, big national show like that at, you know, with a extremely respected person was, was super helpful. Um, and actually that's one of been the main, one of the main things I've tried to do is to, um, surround myself with people who are far more respectable than me. <laughs> um, so, you know, one of the things I started finding was, um, we'd made a certain amount of progress with policymakers. And I kind of had, I managed to get in touch with kind of people on the inside 
who were able to tell me like, okay, this, you know, this person's been briefed and that person's been briefed and this is a conversation that happened, but this person over here isn't convinced yet. And it started becoming clear that um, a view that the science wasn't clear enough um, was causing policy to not move. Um, so at that point, I decided to try to, to, to fill that gap. Um, and, you know, I hate writing scientific papers so, so much, but I thought this is what has to happen. And I thought it has to be respectable. So it needs people's names who are not me. <laughs> so I, I reached out to a bunch of people who had, who had been helpful and um, ended up writing a paper with 19 co-authors, of which the other 18 are extremely respectable people, <laughs> unlike me, um, you know, very well-known Stanford and UCLA professors and um founders of major South African public health initiatives and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, that was great, you know, publishing a, um, it was just a literature review, basically looking at 84 references to say like, well, what's the evidence around mask wearing? Do people actually do it? Does it actually block the droplets? You know, what's the efficacy look like? What's the modeled outcomes look like? Stuff like that. Um, so that was super helpful. And then that helped me get in touch with um, this absolutely brilliant Oxford professor called Tricia Greenholsch, who um, I think she's the editor of the Oxford evidence-based team for COVID-19. She certainly produces a lot of their content. Um, and she, luckily enough, had just written a, a, a letter in the British Medical Journal, not just a letter, I think a paper, describing that people should be wearing masks even if there isn't enough evidence because of the precautionary principle, which which all countries in the UN, I think, have signed up to, which is basically, hey, if there's something that could save a lot of lives, you should do it, even if you're not 100% sure it's going to work. Um, and so her and I ended up writing a joint um, article. It ended up just being on, my, on our blog on FastAI, but basically describing our kind of joint view. And, you know, she's got a, an OBE. She's super well-respected. And so once that happened, she suddenly started getting lots and lots of calls from the UK press who have continued to be the slowest um, just about in the world at <laughs> getting behind every scientific kind of <laughs> development with COVID-19. Yeah, yeah, that's what we'll, we'll save the editorializing for a different day, but boy. <laughs> so one of the things I definitely noticed is uh, people listen a lot more to credentials than to science or data. Mm. Um, so, you know, one of the main kind of advocacy approaches I found effective is to find, you know, thoughtful, open-minded people, convince them or find people who are already convinced, uh, and then work with them, you know, so that then, you know, we've got their, their credentials behind it, which for, I think for maybe for most people even is, is more convincing than, um, than data or science. You know, that paper that you wrote, it strikes me that that's kind of like a full circle moment, taking you all the way back to your very original insight. And in fact, one of the first things you said to me uh, about your personal response to the quarantine principle, sorry. And one of the first things you said to me about your personal response to the pandemic was that you made personal decisions on the basis of the precautionary principle, that you were looking at this data with your class and looking at it probabilistically instead of using this you know, more traditional view of data. And yeah. despite you not having the credential of being the supposed expert in the virology or the epidemiology of this, had this insight that kind of carried you through the whole time. And the paper was like 
the official world catching up to the insight that you had had privately, you know, almost a month earlier. Yeah, it's kind of pulling it all together. I mean, you know, um, data scientists like me are not really experts at anything, <laughs> but what we can do is 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 pull together um, data from other experts. It could be like raw epidemiological data or data that's, you know, shown in tables of studies. So, you know, although I was the lead author on that paper, my main job was to kind of try and find all the literature I could. And frankly, a lot of that was a community effort. Folks on Twitter helped find all this literature. And I kind of tried to find interesting looking tidbits here and there, which I then passed off to the other 18 authors. And they were able to say like, oh, yes, that's correct. That is a helpful thing to know for this modeling perspective. And here's how it integrates with the other pieces. So yeah, it's kind of like a a curator and a kind of an organizer, uh, I guess. I've noticed this phenomenon in a bunch of the efforts that I've seen that you're describing that there's people who have the supposed authority to speak to the public who have the credentials. And oftentimes when they're speaking, if you go behind the scenes, you see there's actually a civilian or a programmer or some unqualified person who actually did the analysis and got the data and helped them figure out what to say. And I think people assume that people who would have those credentials would have figured those things out on their own. So what does it mean that we've had to kind of do this credential laundering to get the message out? Right. It, it depends a bit on the jurisdiction, but like particularly in Britain, um, I find that the people who are the talking heads are a very, very, very long way away from the analysis that they're talking about. Um, it's somewhat true in the US, but there's, um, a, a, you know, a, at least in the tech sector, you know, there's more people who are actually hands-on who actually do the work. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it does mean that I often find myself debating people on TV who I know perfectly well are just parroting what their teams have told them. Um, and so they're not going to change their mind because they don't actually directly have the knowledge or ability to, to make their own assessment. Yeah. They were just given the time. So what I've been doing. Yeah. So what I've been doing a lot is to, um, try to find the scientific advisors behind the scenes and talk with them. Um, so that I know that then you know that that will get passed up and hopefully get get turned into new policy. Talk about the public persuasion campaign that you ran to to get people to contact their officials and push for uh, masks as public policy. Look, here's the thing about masks, right? Um, masks are only somewhat okay at protecting the wearer, but they're really, really, really good at blocking stuff that coming coming out from somebody who's infected. So if you wear a mask, so it's not that... for yourself; it's for the people around you. Yeah, exactly. So that, that, but you know, screw the people around me. I want to be safe. So that means I want everybody around me wearing a mask. I don't want to go to the shops and find people around me not wearing masks because I'm unsafe, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So how the hell do I get the people around me to wear masks? Um, you know, to do that, we, we probably need um, laws or massive kind of um, celebrity driven campaigns. So those are the two things I've been working on. Um, you know, the other reason we need laws, much more importantly, is that if everybody wears masks, then they're keeping their droplets to themselves, which means the reproduction rate R decreases, which means that the, you know, the virus stops transmitting as quickly, uh, which hopefully means we can start to, you know, well, A, less people die, and, and B, we can start to end the lockdown. So there's like basic public policy reasons that everybody needs to wear a mask, just like everybody needs to be vaccinated. It's it's the same basic pu public policy decision here. It's not just for you, but for the community you're a part of. So yeah, so I kind of thought, okay, well, let's try and do these two things. 
so I reached out to some folks around kind of advertising to try to build um, um, some celebrity-driven messaging campaigns. And then, uh, yeah, I was introduced to this thing called ResistBot um, for trying to help move the needle on policy. Um, for whatever reason, policy is still heavily driven by people who get letters. Letters to, letters to senators actually get read, and then they get, um, you know, uh, the, the contents of them get told to the senators. It's, it's a remarkable thing. Yeah, it's super weird. And they, you know, sometimes they have to be faxed and sometimes they have to be emailed and sometimes they have to be mm -hmm. delivered physically or whatever. So ResistBot is this cool thing where they figured all out those details and all you have to do is send a text message and it'll take you through the process of, of getting that letter or fax or whatever out for you. And so... The ResistBot guys, uh, the guy I worked with uh, on this, Jason, he was amazing. He basically said, well, what's your campaign? And, J and Jason, just for those who don't know, is a longtime civic tech entrepreneur. And we'll, we'll have a link to, to the uh, Mass for All campaign on ResistBot in uh, in the show notes. Yeah, so he um, he basically said, all right, write a letter, and then I'll set up the SMS so it gets sent to all these governors every time somebody sends a text message. So that was kind of terrifying. <laughs> so it's <laughs> like, I don't know anything about writing letters to governors. So... Uh, I reached out around for, you know, again, for help from some of these amazing people who've been so useful, you know, wrote a letter, got some help drafting it, which basically said, hey, I'm, you know, I want to be safe in my community. And that means you have to make sure everybody wears a mask, um, you know, and so please enact an executive order to make that happen. And then it was great because I was on um, Joy Reid. MSNBC, and I, I, I um, one of the things I found very helpful, which I've learned with media, is to talk to the segment producer beforehand and just be totally direct. So I actually said, you know, I want to speak to the segment producer beforehand. And I said to her, uh, look, I want to use Joy's segment to pitch this um, campaign. And uh, so I want you to have this, you know, Chiron ready to put on the screen when I say mm -hmm. it. And so I was actually able to say, okay, text masks for all to 50409, and this will send it to your governor, and this is going to, you know, help make sure that you're safe. And, you know, within um, minutes, Jason said there was thousands of, of letters. Thousands. Oh, the, the data was unbelievable. Yeah. I actually turned out I had a, a mutual acquaintance with Joy, and Joy told our mutual acquaintance, she was like, after this segment aired, I was like flooded with emails saying like, this is amazing. This is so great. Why aren't you doing more of this? And so like that segment was uh, super helpful to kick this thing off. And since that time, you know, it's taken a while, but you're seeing a lot of um, governors on board now. Yeah. At the time that you started the campaign, how many states had a mandatory masks? Zero. Zero states, zero no, cities. No one had done it yet. Yeah. And, but it, was, you know, it wasn't just the resist pot thing. I also tried really hard to find... Uh, kind of insiders. So there's a lot mm -hmm. of kind of highly connected business people who who are friends with governors or whatever. And so one of the things I did was I actually made a, a video, a private YouTube video where I said, you know, governor, we need you to enact an executive order requiring masks for these reasons. So I kind of like personally, I didn't say yeah. the name because I wanted multiple people to have it, but it's, you know, try to make it sound as personal as possible. So this is like my lowest view youtube video ever it's had like 16 views but basically it's gone out to like a but dozen they're all governors yeah. governors and um and so like then i've been kind of talking to the people who are talking to the governors to say like has he watched the video yet you know what did he say i hope you make the video public at some point because it was powerful to see i thought <laughs> it's very direct and very um I, I don't i bet governors don't get a lot of messages like that 
I don't know. I, I, I have no idea because I don't know. I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> but it seemed to work at the time. And uh, and certainly some of the governors that I sent it to have have enacted these things. And hopefully that was something that they helped found useful in that decision. Where are we in the in the adoption of Mass for All here in the US? Uh, do you have a sense of kind of uh, where we are and where we still need to go? Um, you know, it's still early, like uh, the public perception still not there yet. Uh, it's certainly well ahead of where it is, you know, in, in the UK or Australia, for instance. Um, I mean, the Southern Hemisphere is going to be in so much trouble because people in the Southern Hemisphere think they've done a good job of controlling this thing when actually all they've done is lived in a warmer climate, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, UK is basically not, you know, like I say, we've got the, the London mayor very much on board, but not much happening elsewhere yet. Hopefully mm-hmm. that'll change. Yeah, how many how many states have done it so far? You know, obviously um, the Bay Area communities. Uh, yeah, we're very it. fortunate here. Um, L- LA was actually the first and actually... Um, one of the scientists I was working closely with was was very much in the ear of the LA mayor's office to make that happen. Yeah, and we in San Francisco don't like LA to be first, so we, we should have, <laughs> we got to be more on the ball for the next thing. Well, this was one of the things in my pitch to governors was like, hey, who's going to be the first? You know, like yeah. you'll literally be remembered by history, you know, as being the first. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, this is yeah, this is the thing that, that I guess I hadn't realized either. People don't really realize is. These policies that get enacted is only because a, a, a whole lot of um, lobbying that gets done. Basically, people like me deciding to care a whole lot and figuring out how to, you know, how to convince the right people. So yeah, so now we've got um, New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, LA, Miami, Washington. San Antonio, Dallas County, San Francisco, uh, lot of Massachusetts is rapidly moving as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, all those all those localities have something in common. I'll, I'll leave it to to the listeners to make an exercise in figuring that out. Wait, what? What is that? Uh, well, I don't want to get into the politics of it, but but if you're saying politics, then you know I, I hope you're not suggesting that they're all Democrat because they're not. Um, so Hogan is Maryland, and uh, he's actually been a bit of a star here because he did this fantastic interview where he talked about um, rights, and he was like, "Hey, you know, if you're worried this is intruding on your rights, then you know, let me tell you this: if if I go out and your virus comes into me because you're not wearing a mask, you have very much got on the top. That's you know, exactly right. That's rights. exactly right. I mean, that's, that's that is a key argument. Yeah." Yeah, so, we're lucky to have them. I don't it. think this is, you know, um, as as partisan. You know, it's not it's not that partisan. I mean, it, it became a bit difficult when Trump said he wasn't personally going to wear a mask, mm-hmm. um, but at the same time, he said, you know, he's he's fine with the idea, and he talked about like wearing a <laughs> scarf or whatever. And to be fair, you know, although it's not a great role model, he actually doesn't have to because everybody around him gets tested first. So right. there is actually one person in the country who, you know, you could argue doesn't have to wear a mask. I want to hear some more stories about like the actual conversations you had with policymakers or kind of, you must've had some of those moments that felt surreal where you're talking to someone, you're like, why am I the person talking to this person about this topic? Just do you have any stories like that you can tell? I've never t- talked to a US politician before. Um, and so when I was, was first talking to this, um, Republican senator, 
thinking like, well, A, why am I talking to you? You know, I'm just some random data scientist. And it's also like, why am I talking to you? Like, because I, I, you know, my politics are not at all aligned with with his. Um, and you know, it's kind of like, yeah, this feeling of um, how how did this happen? Like a few days ago, I really didn't think think about masks at all, uh, and suddenly here I am briefing a senator who's, you know, going to be talking to Donald Trump. Um, it was a really weird feeling. And one of the interesting things was how, um, yeah, how very unpartisan this kind of whole thing turned out to be. I, I've been getting so much help from people who have diametrically opposed political views to mine. And we just don't talk about that. You know, we just, we just help each other out because we're all clearly just trying to um, save lives and, and save the economy. And so it's been cool to see how um, people are, are, are happy to put their politics aside to to respond to a pandemic. How do you know that we're making progress towards mask for all? It's pretty easy to measure progress in terms of um, policy change. Uh, so, you know, the CDC now says you should wear a mask. Many parts of the country in the US now require a mask. Um, countries like Indonesia and Israel and the Czech Republic and Slovenia and Mongolia and Singapore require masks. And, uh, you know, the vast majority of countries that require masks uh, have only done so since the um, campaign began. No one was talking about it before. Um, like Singapore is an interesting example. That's a country that, that did everything right, testing and tracing, quarantine, but they didn't do masks. They actually had a, a campaign recommending people only use masks if they're showing symptoms. And because they did all the other stuff right, they didn't have a terrible outbreak, but their R was getting above two. And uh, recently things have been getting super concerning. And so then a week ago they changed and they went from officially recommending don't use a mask to immediately requiring using a mask at all times, including in the workplace. So, you know, looking around the world, we just see the recommendations and the laws changing. And for a lot of those, you know, I've, directly being involved in the conversations with the government leaders or their advisors as those things are, are happening. You know, in, in, in every case, there's always um, scientists um, and advisors behind the scenes. It's not politicians just deciding to do these things on their own. How do you know that you're having an impact? You know, that these things wouldn't have happened anyway on their own? Uh, these things might well have happened on their own. Um, one would like to think that eventually people must realize that covering your face with a piece of cloth will stop bits of saliva coming out. You know, it's not rocket science. Um, I guess the question with these things is always how long will yeah. it take? Um, you know, I'm concerned that it might have taken all the way up until the, you know, next winter when we'll probably have some kind of second outbreak. Or maybe it would have, you know, I don't know. Like, there was just no sign of it happening. Um, perhaps it would have kind of gradually grown out of the Czech Republic, very mm -hmm. successful campaign anyway. Mm -hmm. Like, we certainly saw... Um, we certainly saw from, from the Czech Republic that it uh, moved to Austria and uh, Slovenia within weeks. So maybe it would have gradually take, you know, come from there. But I don't know. Um you know, I've I've personally been on so many 
calls with policymakers and emails with their advisors, you know, working directly to make these things happen. Uh, so how long would it have taken otherwise? I, I don't know, but every day counts with this stuff. So it, it certainly seems to have been helpful. When well, that topic has come up a lot in my conversations with people who are either on the sidelines or getting involved in the fight is for, for a lot of the folks that I know that said, you know, it doesn't seem like this is my job or why am I doing this? The thing that ultimately has been decisive for a number of them is even if all I do is accelerate the right thing happening by a few days in an exponential situation, that could mean thousands of lives. And so we're, we're all obligated to do what we can, yeah. even if we don't bend the curve of the long run, even if the impact is, you know, we don't know what it could be, but on the possibility that we could even accelerate the right things happening by a few days, we're called to act. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's been cool to see how there's, there's certain people in the world who do things in, in minutes rather than weeks. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been one of the challenges for huge kind of slow moving organizations like uh, the World Health Organization that just don't tend to work at that kind of speed. Um, So, you know, or the UK government. (laughs) Listen, you're talking to someone who's been trying to pitch people in organizational transformation for speed and agility, you know, as an organizational capability for years. Yeah. And to see people talk about it as unnecessary during the good times and now lament its absence in the bad times without making the connection that these are yeah. choices. These are not inevitabilities. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, a pandemic, it's it's like you look at the difference between places that kind of locked down two weeks earlier versus two weeks later, and it's, it's terrifying to look at or look at the difference between the countries that have mask mandates and those that don't. And we knew that from the 1918 pandemic, that even in the US, the cities that locked down sooner had dramatically different economic and health outcomes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we didn't study that history and act on it. It's uh, heartbreaking. Yeah. It's also this misunderstanding of kind of asymmetric upsides versus downsides, you know. Yeah. Explain what you mean by that. So people who demand gold standard evidence to do anything, you know, um, when, you know, like masks, for example, when the thing has almost no cost. The potential upside is huge. Um, so in that situation, you know, you should demand gold standard evidence not to do the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is kind of just an approach which is very alien to certain professions. Have you seen the uh, historical threads about the anti-mask leagues mm-hmm. and the uh, protests in 1918? Yeah. It was one of the things I studied in my research. Yeah, yeah talk, talk a little bit about that history, uh, especially as it relates to mass, and then wh- what you think we should learn from that history uh, as we go forward into this crisis. Sure. So the 1918 pandemic had a lot of overlaps with this one. It was a you know respiratory infection like COVID-19, but this was, in that case, it was the flu. And I think actually we're going to be wanting to study it a whole lot because it teaches us a lot about um, how people respond. And so in places like San Francisco, people thought as the, as summer came, oh, wow, we've, you know, we're past it. So we, we, we did all this hard work of, of, of distancing and doing things outside and wearing masks and that's over. It's behind us, thank God. And so when things started flaring up again, the next winter, there was a lot of anger when it was suggested that those hard things should be done again. So for example, uh, the anti-mask league appeared as that second winter started coming along 
of people demanding we don't, you know, we shouldn't be required to wear masks again because they they were the law. They weren't good masks, by the way. They were gauze masks, which obviously mm. are not great for source control. Um, things can go through them. I don't know why they used gauze, but there you go. Nowadays we use cotton or paper towel, which works much better. Um, so two thousand people got together in what we would today call a super spreader event <laughs> without masks. Uh, we don't know exactly what the transmission rate was from that, but you know, um, it seems pretty likely. It was big. There was also a, a war bonds, uh, you know, big uh, ceremony, a parade uh, in um, St. Louis, I think it was. Mm -hmm. 250,000 people turned out. Um, and it basically turned into this just huge statewide massacre. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're seeing similar things here, like the fact that Mardi Gras went ahead in uh, Louisiana Despite, you yeah. know, it was really as the pandemic was kicking off and now it's been so badly hit. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the responding quickly um, and and appropriately based on the, the huge risk versus the limited upside, it, it's it's hard to do, but um, and people are still not always doing it. But I think, you know, places like the Bay Area and um, LA uh, examples of, of doing this pretty well. You know, I, I would have liked to have seen things happen even a little bit earlier. Yeah. Um, but, you know, on the whole, they've, they've done a pretty good job and uh, the hospital system's not been overwhelmed. And in fact, UCSF uh, healthcare workers are flying off to New York to, to help. That's how, how well that's been handled. I mean, we're very, very, very fortunate and, and uh, very grateful to the leaders who, who stepped up and, and did do the right thing. As you say, maybe not as early as we would have liked, but we're still waiting for Gavin Newsom. I don't know, you know, as a governor, um, he actually ordered hundreds of millions of masks, and I get the impression he's waiting for them to arrive, which is crazy for me because we, you know, we already have the ability to put a handkerchief over your face. So I don't, I don't know why, you know, as a governor, he's taking so long on this important public health measure. Yeah, there's some backstory to that, um, to the masks in China, and, and the whole thing has been uh, just. Another another completely surreal topic for maybe for another time, but um... well, you know, it is though. It is it is one of the interesting stories here is that um, one of the th things we keep facing is um, jurisdictions that don't act because they don't have the perfect masks yet, and they don't have the mm -hmm. perfect messaging campaign yet about donning and doffing them, and the perfect understanding yet of how to clean them. And I find it really weird this idea that we should do nothing at all until we can do everything perfectly, um, but it's. Yeah, it's a super common response, which I find, you know, really infuriating. It's a it's an artifact of 20th century management thinking. Not to digress mm. or too much, but the the logic of mass production and the economics of that organizational design uh, really reward planning in advance. You know, high efficiency, single action. You know, measure measure twice, cut once. And yeah, well. uh, and cut against speed. And you know, if you're dealing with a problem, or that's a good toolkit. Maybe that's okay, but it's especially yeah. bad in conditions of extreme uncertainty. Yeah, careful. You might get me started. I was a management consultant doing that stuff in the 90s. So, yeah, I know exactly yeah, what you yeah. mean. Yeah, you know, you I was not about. fond of it then. I'm still not fond of it now. Yeah, and and boy, is it, is it needed. Is change here needed more than ever? Mm -hmm. So, maybe let me switch gears for a moment and ask you if you have advice. Like, uh, there's probably somebody listening to this podcast who's still on the sidelines of this fight or has had an insight, has seen some data like you've seen and has been radicalized by it, or is just feeling frustrated and they're not sure if they can make a difference, they're not sure what to do, what advice would you give them? 
You know, it's the same advice that I give entrepreneurs, you know, as a AI academic who spent years as an entrepreneur, I have a lot of people asking for advice about, you know, AI product insight they have, you know, what should they do? Um, you know, in both cases, I think the answer is give it your absolute best shot. Like, you know, don't piss around, right? So if you think you have an insight, an idea, a product, an app, or whatever that can genuinely help people, then, you know, work the hell out of it. Like, write it up as carefully as you can, you know, um, find everybody you can who could intelligently critique it, get people to pick holes in it, um, um, make it, you know, as compelling as as possible, um, do things in public, um, you know, and if you're hearing back from people that, you know, well, if, you know, A, if people are just not, don't seem interested, don't blame the people, right? <laughs> if you're not getting people interested, it's because you're not interesting enough. And so like, why not? Are you, are you wrong? Mm-hmm. Are you pitching it the wrong way? Um, you know, I, I often find, you know, one of the things I talk to my students the most about is tenacity. You know, the biggest difference I find between people who are kind of successful entrepreneurs and successful researchers versus not is whether they stick with things until they finish it. So, I, you know, um, it's the same here. It's like, uh, if you've got something, then then stick with it. I, I, I can't tell you how many doctors I dealt with, particularly in the, you know, a few weeks ago with this campaign telling me normal people could never learn to use masks properly. They'll just touch them too much. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's just Mm going to, you know, make them less careful about social distancing, blah, blah, blah. Just have to keep sticking with it anyway. So what would it look like to apply what you've called the drivetrain approach to pandemic interventions? So the drivetrain approach was something I came up with when I built this company called Optimal Decisions Group which is a particularly, you know, boring and not societally great company, which is all about um, helping insurers to make more money by setting their prices better. And so insurers basically set their prices by looking at how, you know, for say car insurance, how risky are you? How how likely are you to crash? How much is that going to cost if you do? Um, And then try to figure out like, all right, let's make sure we charge more than that so we make a profit. And that actually doesn't tell the whole picture because, um, maybe I'm in a hurry. Um, and so you could charge me much more. And so if you only charge me like 10% more than my risk, then you're putting leaving a lot of money on the table. So um, I developed this thing called the, the drivetrain approach where you build um, a bunch of models, including in this case, an elasticity model. How likely would I be to accept a particular price and a predictive model of risk and kind of combine them all together into a simulation that says like, oh, if you charge this amount of money, here's what your eventual market share would be, here's what your risk would be, and so forth. And then you can kind of optimize that. So the drivetrain approach for pandemic response would be, um, okay, what are all of the things we could estimate about how likely are people to socially distance yet? Well, we don't know. Let's make our best guess. If you you know, are wearing a mask, if you're not, what data do we have? Let's try to figure out as best as we can what it might be. You know, What's the probability that you're going to um, remove it when you're speaking. Um, you know, so you build all these different models, and you can just chuck it into a spreadsheet or whatever, or do a simple 
probabilistic programming model that then says, okay, so if we have a mask, here's the estimated number of lives lost per month, you know, the estimated value of the economy per month, you know, how long until we might be able to end the lockdown um, versus if we don't require masks. You know, that's the kind of uh, thing I'd love to see people doing. But literally most, um, you know, official evidence-based policies for healthcare don't actually include the cost of the intervention at all, which is why we can have something that doesn't have a randomized controlled trial, like a lockdown, and the cost is <laughs> huge, does happen. But something like masks, which may be just you know as effective, must be like something you can do in conjunction with social distancing um, rather than instead of, and has almost no cost, but doesn't happen. And so from a kind of basic common sense perspective or from this kind of drivetrain approach perspective, it makes no sense at all. What do you hope people will take away from this experience? Um, what, what do you hope, if you could pick one thing that, that we as a society will take into the new normal after the pandemic passes, what would it be? Main thing I hope is that we keep our lives. So I want to see, you know, less lives lost. Um, I hope we can keep our economy. <laughs> um, and then, you know, assuming we find a way to make these things happen, um, it would be great to see some of the different ways we're seeing to do things where maybe we don't have to travel as much. Maybe we don't need as many certifications. Maybe it's okay for doctors to practice across state lines. You know, in a pandemic, I guess we we start to realize which laws are actually getting in the way more than they're helping. <laughs> so maybe some of those things can be um, maintained beyond this as well. Where do you think we go from here? How do we get out of the crisis? Um, well, there's a lot of uncertainty, so we have to accept that. And so any planning has to be aware of the possibility that herd immunity might not be possible or might be well, maybe it is possible. A vaccine might not be possible. Maybe it is possible. Maybe those things last for a short amount of time. Maybe they last for a long amount of time. Um, these are all things we don't know. It could be that, it seems likely to me, that during warmer months, things will be a lot easier. And then during winter months, it'll be much harder again. It seems very likely that people during summer times will become apathetic, they'll be hubris, um, and that will make the winter times, the first winter, way, way worse. Um, so if we're going to get out of this, we need not just kind of one-off reactionary policies, but a, a complete understanding of what the whole dynamic of this looks like. I mean, we certainly need to be wearing masks in public, um, especially whenever we're indoors or in very close proximity to others. To not do that is to increase the reproduction rate. And so that's just going to be, you know, a massacre. At the same time, we need to realize that not everybody can stay locked up forever. You know, we, we, we have jobs for a reason. People do need to work. To, to not do so is to, is, it has a huge cost on, on lives. And so we need to be talking about like, well, how do we gradually get back to life but also know that there will be more breakouts. And so how do we be sure that we know when a breakout's happening? And then do we have the systems in place to track it? So we need good testing. 
and we need good contact tracing. And we just need to kind of also set this expectation that for some period of time, which might be forever, <laughs> might be years, it might not, we're all going to have outbreaks from time to time, which means we all need to be testing to, to be know when it's happening, contract tracing to know what's happening, and from time to time regions are going to have to be getting very good at various types of lockdowns to ensure that those breakouts don't turn into new pandemics. Jamie, I wanted to thank you for, for all the work that you're doing here to keep all of us safe. Thank you for cutting against the stereotype of an academic and getting into action and uh, you seemingly being everywhere at once in defense of these values and the need to save as many lives as possible. Uh, and of course, thank you. Thank you for coming on and, and sharing this conversation. Thank you. This has been Out of the Crisis. I'm Eric Reese. Out of the Crisis is produced by Ben Ehrlich, edited by Jacob Tender. Music composed and performed by Cody Martin. Hosting is by Breaker. For more information on COVID-19 and ways you can help, visit helpwithcovid.com. If you have feedback or you're working on a project related to the pandemic, please reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at E-R-I-C-R-I-E-S. Let's solve this together.